all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 237 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the Shining episode of the SLS cast because it turns out that the number of a haunted room in the Overlook Hotel in Stanley Kubrick's film The Shining as well as a part of a network of interrelated numbers within the film happens to be 237. And with that wonderful little bit of Overlook Hotel shining knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. Hello. Hello, Matthew. It's like you met a robot, a robot child for the first time. Hello. <laughs> That's like I tell the kids every once in a while. Hello, I'm Mr. Dad. Anyway. Well, it's almost... Well, actually, by the time this episode releases, when it drops, it'll officially be summertime. Yeah, I think. Was it the 21st, right? 21st, yeah. Longest day of the year. It's because it's so hot. You just want it to be over, but you're just sweating your (laughs) ass off. Especially in Texas. You lived in Houston for a very long time. You already know that we've been experiencing that for well over a month now. And I hate to tell you that we are experiencing a heat wave right now. Oh, is it getting all the way up to like 85 degrees outside or something? Well, okay. So like we don't have air conditionings here and where our apartment is, we're on top of a hill. We're pretty close to the beach. We're about half a mile away from the beach. So normally we get a pretty nice breezy, cool air, but once it gets hot, And it's not quite a dry hot, and it's not quite the type of hot where it'll burn all the smog. Instead, what we get, we're stuck in this petri dish of damp smogness. And so that where our apartment is stationed, which is right above a garage, the the heat builds up in that garage and it slowly works its way up through our floors. So our apartment gets up to like 90 degrees and that's with windows open. That's with window fans on and circulating air. It's still about 90 degrees in here uh, in the heat of the day. And granted, it's only for like a few hours, but still, man, it's hot as shit. And it's not good for your uh, your recording equipment either. I I don't know what it's going to take because even with the, we we got a really good deal on our uh, on our, what am I trying to think of? On our energy, right? We got a contract, you know, and all that good stuff because you can do those kinds of things now. And so we have a ridiculously good rate on our uh, kilowatt per hour that we pay. And yet I still cannot convince my wife to drop it any lower than 76. We have to keep the house at 76 all the time. Now, I can sometimes get around that when we're like having company over and stuff like that, because it's like, you know, you might want to bake, but I don't think that our friends and family want to bake. And I can usually get down to 72. But um, do you ever lie to her and say, we're going to have company today? And Matt, I thought you said, where's the company at? Where's your good friends at? Oh, I mean, they're they're running late. They're they're still coming. Just leave the air on. We want it to be cozy. And (laughs) Uh, I wish I wish. 
But what would happen was, what would happen would be is she would eventually find out, and then she would like just raise the temperature to like 82 or something ridiculous like that. So I'll just suffer in my 76 degree house. First world problem, right? I mean, when you think about it, there are literally people who are sweating to death and dying in heat waves on the planet, and we're bitching because our houses are not at 72 degrees all the time. And you don't sound sick. Sickness and heat, they do not go hand in hand. You know what else doesn't go hand in hand? What's that? Would be a boycott and then watching something related to your boycott that you're supposed to be boycotting. I finally got around to seeing uh, Star Trek Yorktown Drift. I watched that today. Finally. It doesn't sound like it was a good decision on your end by your well, tone. Okay. So, no, well, okay. Well, all right. So... The 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 lawsuits long since been over. Everything's been settled. The Axonar lawsuits. Correct. The Axonar lawsuit in question. So since everybody else seems to have moved on and everything, you know, I was like, well, whatever. Um, and I got a notification that it was on Amazon Prime. So I was like, hey, since I guess technically I just already paid for it, even though I'm not trying to spend money on it, may as well watch it because it's you know quote unquote free now. So. Went on to the old Amazon Prime streaming and watched it. And, and it, it, <laughs> would you like to hear my? Would you like to hear my little review of it? I, I actually took the time to post a review for this for this wonderful uh, movie on, on Facebook, or did you do it on Twitter? I did it in the Axonar fan group Facebook page. Oh, really? really really did what do the axonar fans think of star trek beyond do they like it were they opposed were they against it or what because i'm sure um, a number of them a... actually went to go see it sure sure it was pretty it was pretty heated there were a lot of people who were boycotting there were a lot of people who were just angry uh there were some people who were diehard gonna love it no matter what but the vast majority of people um I felt were kind of left with the overwhelming impression of meh, and that's kind of where it got left. Like, it's not, you know, at the end of the day, the consensus seems to be it's not a terrible movie, but seems to be hard-pressed that they're going to make any more. That's kind of where I left, and I, and I can see why after finally watching it today. So yeah, but okay. So since I, since I apparently have been teasing this thing very poorly, uh, here's what I, here, Here's what I wrote. I said, after much ado, I finally got around to seeing Star Trek Yorktown Drift. It just hit Amazon Prime streaming, if you're interested. It's kind of hard to know how to feel about it. With Star Trek 2009, I was so excited for the future. They had smartly created an alternate timeline that would allow them to honor what came before without having to be bound to it. To truly explore the universe as it had never been explored before. To celebrate... They do a somewhat shoddy retread of Shaka Khan. I was so disappointed. It's not the it's not that the movie was bad per se, just that there was literally no need to tell this story. Let the crew grow and define themselves in a way that reflects what we hope for ourselves, not in a way that we've seen before. And switching Kirk for Spock doesn't count. It's like the franchise stopped looking forward, which is what Star Trek has always done best. Then Axonar happened, and I was one of those who participated in the boycott. The lawsuit just seemed to reiterate everything that was wrong with Trek today. Yet, like all things, that too had passed, and I found myself checking in on the crew of the Kelvin Enterprise. 
It was an interesting attempt at the growth we've been wanting so desperately, but ultimately it feels forced. The brief glimpses of character insight and potential gave me hope, especially the McCoy-Spock uh, dynamic. But the plot holes and wonky special effects... How about that bike attack intro, huh? Kept that hope in check. They didn't quite repeat the hunt for the green Spocktober. But seeing as how they did blow up the Enterprise in that movie, it makes me question the motives for its destruction here as well. It's not a bad movie. It's not. But it just seems that story-wise, they're cutting off their nose despite their face. 2.75 out of 5. Better than okay, but I can't quite say I liked it. Yeah, and I gave it a 3.75. Is that correct? You did. You You did. And I am actually was planning, I was planning on watching it this evening, so I'm looking forward to going back and revisiting it just to see if I liked it solely because it was something different compared to the J.J. Abrams movies. So, I don't know, we'll see, we'll see. And don't get me wrong, I love the Beastie Boys, but I really don't think Beastie Boys music belongs in Star Trek. I'm just... I'm just saying. So are you are you saying like in the future the only rock music from the past is the Beastie Boys? Well, it's not even that. It's just that they start they also like make the most obvious jokes. So is this classical music? Uh yes, I believe so. And then here they are fighting for their lives but Chekhov still tapping his foot while they're, you know. And I'm like Guys, look, I get it. You know, we don't just have classical music. But I swear to God, it's at that point in the movie that I that that I thought fucking Dom was going to come out and get on the bridge of one of the fucking other ships and be like, let's go protect our family. I, you know, and would that have been wrong in this movie? I don't know. I like how slowly your Dom impression is slowly turning into your Sylvester Stallone <laughs> impression. <laughs> Well, they do kind of sound alike, you know, kind of. It's not quite full alien. There's more range in Stallone, you know. So, you want to go jump into the old mail sack? Slap that sack. Check that mail sack. Check it good. Check that mail sack like you should. All right. So, we actually have email this time. What? I know, it's amazing. If you would like to send us an email, we would love to hear from you. You, of course, can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. Um, if you would like to follow us on Twitter, we would love that as well. Please do so by following at the SLScast. We actually picked up another 19 followers, so that is outstanding. We appreciate all of those who followed us on uh, Twitter. But our... Our emails. Emails. We got one from Raphael. Yes, Raphael of We Are Not Here to Please You reached out. And um, we were talking about some stuff. And I actually, I, I apologize. I meant to mention this on last week's episode, and I completely spaced it. Uh, and what really sucks is, although you'll will never know because of the magic of editing, I, I actually had two days with which to remember to do this, and I forgot both days. So, you know. Total idiot. At any rate, so um, there is a new Finnish superhero movie coming out. And actually, it is the first superhero movie to come out of Finland. Uh, it's called Rendell. And um, the if you go, and you can go check out the trailer on YouTube. If you go check out the trailer, the scoring that was done for this trailer uh, was done by the same guy who did the intro and the outro for We Are Not Here to Please You. And I think that's just really fucking cool, you know, that someone that we know even tangentially, you know, is 
kind of starting to make it. And I would love to fully plug Raphael's um, musical muse, as it were. Um, and all I have to go on is, quote, the guy. So congratulations, the guy. Um, quote, you know, or, you know, blank insert name here. Uh, we are very proud of you. Actually, I really do like the intro and the outro to the show. And I thought that the, uh, scoring on the trailer was, um, really well done. I mean, it seemed to really fit the tempo and it seemed to fit the motif of the film and everything. So, and actually, I, I kind of want to see the movie now. So good job. <laughs> really and truly. So, uh, yeah. So, Raphael, please, um, Make sure to extra heavy-duty plug your guy, the guy, and that's what's up. I'm a little bit disappointed, to be honest. I spent, literally spent 78 minutes researching sounds of castration, and of course, we have email. Thank you. Thank you so much, Raphael. Thank you. (laughs) Well, you don't just have Raphael to thank. You also have Diana Weeks. Diana, she wrote to us. Yes, of oh, course. This is like she... a slap in the dick. Two. <laughs> two emails. Well, you know, it's it's one for each testicle, right? With castration. Right? Anyway, but I have uh, three. <laughs> oh, no, that's terrible, maybe. Uh, let's see here. So her subject is Five Came Back Doc. She says, hi, guys. I'm watching the documentary you reviewed, Five Came Back, and want to thank you for bringing attention to this uh, revealing work. Who would ever imagine filmmakers so dedicated to a political situation as to enlist in the military to record it? The footage of the Nazi atrocities in Hiroshima and Nagasaki after the atomic bombs were dropped is a sobering reminder of what can happen when dictators are allowed to run amok in the world. Well done. Diana. P.S. In all caps and four exclamation points, Wonder Woman rules! And I don't think you're going to get any arguments from this side of the microphone. Thoughts, Tim? No, uh, I mean, I liked it more than you, so... It's true! <laughs> this is true, but still, over, you know, uh, uh, definitely full-on positive reviews on our end, so... Yeah, At course. any rate, though, seriously, yeah. Raphael um, and Diana, thank you so much, both of you, for sending an email again. Uh, the email is the show at slscast.com, and Twitter is at the SLScast. So, I think we can go from here and do some news. What do you think? Let's do it. Here we go, folks. It's the news. First up from me is some stuff that I did not get to last week. It's a an op-ed piece from Vulture.com by way of Hunter Harris. It says, praise be, Hollywood, give Robin Wright more badass roles. That's right. Um, yeah, I, if I can you know, learn how to swallow my spit correctly here. Hunter says... When did you realize that seeing Robin Wright barrel down a mystical beach racing into a battle of bu- against a bunch of Germans was exactly your purpose in this world? Wonder Woman's first scenes deliver on a promise that feels predetermined. 
We needed, nay, deserved, to see Wright simultaneously shoot a trio of arrows into the chests of the pesky German soldiers who invaded her paradise of womanhood and statement cloaks. House of Cards keeps her laser-focused and disconnected, but Patty Jenkins' movie lets Wright build a character in more vivid hues. She's majestic and elegant and entirely deserving of her own spin-off. Cancel my dermatology appointment. Hold my calls. Seeing Robin Wright go to war and Wonder Woman cleared my skin and paid my bills. <sighs> well, um, and, and, and believe it or not, the glowing review of Robin Wright and all things amazing that she did in contribution to uh, Wonder Woman is carried forward in the rest of this article. It's um, not necessarily too much longer, although it does uh, make a mention here that Robin Wright is expected to return as General Antiope in Justice League. So that's cool. Um. And he and he also imagines that Wright could be in a John Wick style movie of her very own, right? You mean like Atomic Blonde? Sure. Have you seen the trailers for that movie? It's pretty much John Wick slash Taken slash every other one person against the system fighting style type of movie. So I just wonder, like moviegoers, you know, if they think that somebody's a badass performer, if they're just going to get their own fighting movie you know they're badass action fighting movie or something you know i'm not sure although and and look i would definitely recommend that you read this article again vulture.com by way of uh, hunter harris hollywood give robin wright more badass roles but um and and what i read was literally probably the first eh, eighth of the article maybe so i mean you know there's a little more to it the point here is is that you know you you can be able you can build on strong characters that are uh you know played by women and and specifically it's praising Robin Wright here as Antiope but my question is is why focus on just Robin Wright as much look don't get me wrong i love her uh i love her in house of cards um and i think she's a fantastic actress and the understated strength that she showed in her first film appearance, which is, of course, Tim. What's her first film appearance? Robin Wright, first film appearance. I know. Ready? I'm just trying to think of the. I'm just trying to think of the the quote. You lose, Princess. No, Bride. I, it's Princess Bride. I know, but I was trying to think of her quote, the uh, with the Wesley quote that she says. Um, oh, well, I don't know. Like you, are you talking about where he, where she tells him to do something and he says, as you wish, or are you talking about the, I died that day and you can die too for all I care. And she just pushes him off. You know? Yeah. That's one of them. One of the kind of hammy romantic melodramatic lines that she has with the music's getting louder at the end, the flute music in the back and <laughs> their very breathy voice. But yeah, no, I, of course I knew that was her first movie. Surrender, sir. Death first. Will you promise not to kill him? What was that? What was that? <laughs> um, all right. But even then, in a, in a role such as, you know, the princess, but there was an understated elegance and strength that comes through in a character like that. And she, so it's clear that as a phenomenally strong woman, that you know that she is and, and such a great actress as, as she is that yeah of course she's gonna pretty much nail any role that she's given unless some weird misstep happened that we don't foresee my question is is 
why not use the characters, um, the strong characters like Antiope or Diana, you know, straight up from Wonder Woman, and say, let's get more women in general. Why does it have to be just Robin Wright? Why can't it be, um, uh, rooming the pace? Why, why, uh, Numi Rapace, sorry. Why, why can't it be, um, uh, you know, Michelle Rodriguez? Why can't it be any number of great actresses who know how to handle themselves and are clearly seen already as genre action stars in their own right? Is it just, is it just because Robin Wright did such a great job? Um, I, for me, and this is something that has always been, I guess, ironic in a way. We have, as, as much as we celebrate the differences and sometimes denigrate the differences between men and women, there have been women who have always been, you know, and, and of course I go back, the easiest fallback is, is Sigourney Weaver, right? Um, in, in her work with Alien and Aliens and even Alien 3, really. Um, you know, when we see a woman kicking ass and we buy into the character because it's the character, it's a combination. I think it's, I think it's a great actress with a great character. I don't think anybody cares at that point. It's almost like people, you know, you ask anybody and they want to see more of it. And, I don't know. I guess my question is, and I guess, you know, Tim, feel free to answer. Um, is, is the article right to zero in on Robin Wright or should, and again, it's an op-ed piece. So, I mean, it's not like we're <laughs> trying to judge necessarily, but is it right to zero in more on Robin Wright or should it be zeroing in more on the strong female character itself? that can be played by a number of great actresses. Well, I think we've seen a lot of this stuff before, uh, not with female actresses, but also with male actors. I guess, is that redundant, saying female actresses and male actors? I don't know. With actors and actresses, there we go. You know, like people saw Taken, they were like, wow, Liam Neeson can kick ass. We we, we want to see Liam Neeson be more of a badass. And so we've got all like, maybe like five or six Liam Neeson movies where he's basically kicking ass the exact same way that he did in Taken 1. And they're supposed to be totally different movies, you know. So, I mean, we see this kind of thing before, but I think what will be telling, because I've heard this from a lot of people. A lot of people are saying that they want to see Robin Wright playing more strong female badass roles, I guess. I think what will okay. be telling is that in another month or two, or another year, another two years, if these people are still going to be saying that. Because I think a lot of it is lip service, and I, I what I've realized with a lot of these articles, which I really don't read a lot of Collider anymore, because movie news or entertainment news sites like Collider or even some of io9, it, they're very much opinion pieces or op-eds where they're stating what, what this one, one particular author feels at that moment, which may or may not be something that they should really write about or base an entire article about. Um, really, they're not even full articles. They're just maybe like two paragraphs or something. But that's kind of how I feel with this whole thing about uh, Robin Wright 
people wanting her to become or people demanding that she becomes another sure. great big action actress. And it actually, you know, I think you you inadvertently really hit a particular point in this vein. Not so much I, I really think it's the it's the age that's surprising. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just think that it's not only is it breaking a gender stereotype, but it's also breaking an age stereotype. Because Robin Wright, uh let's see here, I'm gonna pull up the old Wikipedia and she is 51. Um, and then, of course, you mentioned Liam Neeson, who is 65. So he was in his late 50s when uh, the first Taken came out. And it's it's that age group, I think, that's also surprising. Because we don't necessarily think of our action stars... Literally outside of Schwarzenegger and Stallone, who seem to be just, you know, timeless muscle men, we don't really think of our action stars really and truly being beyond the age of 40. And even Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are in their 40s now. So I think that's what surprises people. And that's maybe where the idea of zeroing in on the on the actor or actress comes from because there's truly not enough of it. And so when we see that one example, now we want something where we can build onto it even more. And I would suppose in that light, I, I would find more, it more favorable to, to be zeroing in on Robin Wright. But I guess, I don't know, take it from this dude for whatever it's worth. I just want to see more badass chicks in movies. Yeah, I mean, of course, if it's good, though, like, it has to be something different, not just the same crap all the time. I guess that's I mean, true. I guess that is fair to, you know, to, to you know, clarify on that as I equivocate with ums and you knows. <laughs> true. I want a good action movie featuring great characters with awesome actresses. Yeah. And so. I guess that's kind of like my thing with Michelle Rodriguez is that every single thing that Michelle Rodriguez is in, she's always playing Michelle Rodriguez. You know, like she she never plays against type. At least what I've seen of her work, she does not play against type. I think what is very important, and the same thing again goes with male actors as well, so I don't want to sound like I'm picking on actresses. It's important to go against type every once in a while in the early 90s, it was fun seeing Arnold Schwarzenegger movies because there was nobody quite like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, there are so many types of movies that are kind of the same. So nothing is truly unique, I guess. All right, man, what you got for us? Okay, so my first three pieces of news, I'm going to start off strong with some RIPs. The first two here are from the HollywoodReporter.com. First up, Bill Butler, Oscar-nominated film editor on A Clockwork Orange, dies at 83. This here is written by Mike Barnes, and it says this. Bill Butler, the British-born editor who received an Oscar nomination for his work on Stanley Kubrick's 1971 classic, A Clockwork Orange, has died. He was 83. Butler died June 4th at a hospital in Sherman Oaks. His son, Stephen Butler, told The Hollywood Reporter... Butler earned his first film editor credit when he collaborated with Melvin Frank on the romantic comedy Buona Sera, 
Miss Campbell in 1968, starring Gina Lollobriga, and he also edited A Touch of Class in 1973, The Duchess and the Dirtwater Fox, 1973, and Lost and Found in 1979, all three starring George Siegel for the famed writer-director. The London native also cut movies, including One More Time for 1970, directed by Jerry Lewis and starring Sammy Davis Jr. and Peter Lawford, and A Little Sex in 1982, helmed by Bruce Paltrow. And the article does go on from there, uh, quite a bit more. I do highly recommend you checking that out. Uh, the next RIP here, again from the HollywoodReporter.com, comedian Bill Dana, who played the character Jose Jimenez, Dies at 92. You've been selected to be the first man shot to Mars. Would you like to talk about that trip? Not really. <laughs> well, go ahead. That's going to be a long trip, of course, out of space, all those many days long. Now, what do you plan to do to entertain yourself? I plan to cry a lot. <laughs> I could start now if you... No, 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 no. Now, tell me, Jose, when you return from Mars, where will you be landing... I'm going to be landing in Nevada. Ah, the state of Nevada. The state of Nevada. Well, then you obviously are convinced that they're going to get you back to Earth. I am convinced that they will get me back to Earth. Just how far into it? <laughs> That's what I'm not convinced about. But, Jose, sure, they must have provided something to break your fall. Oh, yes, the state of Nevada. state of Nevada. Written here again by Mike Barnes. Bill Dana, who created and starred as the earnest character at the center of the mine name Jose Jimenez, routine that made him one of America's most beloved comic performers of the 1960s, has died. Dana, who first appeared as Jimenez on The Steve Allen Plymouth Show, where he also worked as an Emmy-nominated head writer, died Thursday at his home in Nashville, Emerson College announced. He and a fellow alumnus founded the American Comedy Archives at the Boston School, fulfilling a lifelong goal to honor the study and appreciation of the comedic arts. Dana contrived the trademark, Would You Believe? line of jokes that Don Adams employed as a stand-up and on the TV series Get Smart, and penned one of the funniest episodes in All in the Family history, the one from 1972 in which Sammy Davis Jr. plants a kiss on Archie Bunker. The Nation was introduced to Jimenez in a comedy sketch on Allen's Variety Show in November of 1959. Struggling to speak English, Jimenez appeared in a Santa Claus outfit as an instructor at a school for wannabe Chris Kringles in interviewed by Man on the Street, Pat Harrington Jr. Uh, and in the third passing via Deadline.com, Joan Avildsen dies. Oscar-winning Rocky director and Karate Kid Helmer was 81. Written by Patrick Hypes, it says this. The Los Angeles Times reported that Avildsen's eldest son said the director had pancreatic cancer. Avildsen, who started in the business as a cinematographer, broke into directing the movies like 1970's Joe, starring Peter Boyle, and then Save the Tiger, which won Jack Lemmon a Best Actor Oscar in 1974. Three years later, he took on a script from Stallone and made Rocky, which also earned Stallone a Best Actor Oscar nom and launched one of moviedom's most iconic franchises. The pair later reunited for 1990's Rocky V. 
said Stallone, quote, I owe just about everything to John Avildsen, his directing, his passion, his toughness, and his heart, a great heart, is what made Rocky the film it ultimately became. He changed my life, and I will be forever indebted to him. Nobody could have done it better than my friend John Avildsen. I will miss him. End all quotes there. R.I.P. John Avildsen. Uh, Matt, do you have any... Thing you'd like to add to either of these or any of these RIPs, either Bill Butler, the editor on A Clockwork Orange, uh, Bill Dana, or John Avildsen? I mean, it's sad, of course, you know, definitely RIP to the actors, and, uh, you know, I hope their family, condolences to their families. But the one that touches me the most is definitely, <clears throat> you know, I've seen, you know, having seen Sitting Down and Seen Rocky, which was so influential to me in the in movies and karate kid as well such a big deal for me with movies um that's the one that kind of hits closest to home for me so that's all i have to say about that take it away all right well this is my last piece of news from indiewire.com by way of michael nordine jada pinkett smith criticizes all eyes on me calling the biopics inaccuracies quote deeply hurtful and quote uh let's see here this this news piece is from friday the 16th um and it says here cat graham plays pinkett smith in the movie which hits theaters today which again was last friday um here's what it says <laughs> all eyes are on the new tupac shakur biopic but uh, you'll have a hard time finding anyone with a positive word to say about it Benny Boom's passion project is currently sitting at 24% on Rotten Tomatoes, and now Jada Pinkett uh, Smith has taken to Twitter to point out several in, uh, incidents involving her are either inaccurately portrayed or never happened at all. Quote, the reimagining of my relationship to Pac has been deeply hurtful, end quote, she writes. Um, and basically, it is just, it is literally, the, the rest of the article is a string of tweets that Jada Pinkett Smith uh, wrote, uh, get, you know, I seems that she was live tweeting and i mean basically it's it's just going into the whole wait this didn't happen at all this is not how this happened and and to her credit um she does say look i don't blame the uh what let's see here where is it cat graham so she she's not blaming you know uh the actor who plays tupac or cat graham who plays her in this film but she's like, you got to be kidding me. This stuff is like so completely not real. And um, I guess it definitely doesn't help uh, anything. But I mean, clearly the, um, you know, the critics are, have spoken. They, they don't like it at all. And the audiences have also not really been flocking to see this anyway. But what gets me is that someone in Hollywood in this day and age is literally going, but this biopic isn't telling it how it really happened. And I'm just like, you think? <laughs> because, I mean, it's Hollywood. It never happens like it really did. I mean, sure, you know, look, even with one of my favorite movies of last year, Hacksaw Ridge, of course we know they took liberties with certain things. We know that there was a guy named Desmond Dawes. He was a conscientious objector, and he saved 75 guys. Now, 
you don't need to embellish too much on that to make a badass movie. But I'm pretty sure, you know, alcoholic dad didn't dress up in his World War One uniform and bust into the courtroom with a sob story about his son. I, I'm fairly certain that didn't happen. But and and it's like, why? It I I don't know. It just seems like if it was anything else and she hadn't been a part of it, she probably wouldn't be speaking up like she is right now. And I think, I think it once again proves something that's more important other than bio, you know, Hollywood never gets the real story right, is that nothing is important until it happens to you. And we're all guilty of that, myself included, absolutely. But I just think that if you're going to take to Twitter in front of tens of thousands of people, um, who are going to be recording this for posterity, that maybe you shouldn't make it so obvious. I don't know. Uh, do, do you, thoughts, Tim? Any, if any, at all? I just hear that the movie's just not good, and maybe, maybe how these, what these actors are saying, or what these people are saying, negatively. Maybe that's the best way they're trying to put this movie down. I, ju- I just really don't know what to say. I mean, I guess I, I don't know too much about Tupac, and I guess I really don't care all too much, but. I think we can all go into watching a Hollywood movie, especially like how you were mentioning Hacksaw Ridge, and expect it to be embellished. The movie I'm going to be talking about for our segment three, about the diving horse act, uh, I was doing a lot of research about it because that's based on a true story, and I found out that uh, according to the lady who this movie, who that movie is about, only maybe like the basic premise you know of her deciding to dive horses was the only thing that was pretty much of, correct. Of course, there was a chick, she dived horses and maybe she went blind, who knows. Maybe <laughs> and that's what gets me. It's like people just buy into these things, you know, based on a true story. I mean, well what's the true story? Once upon a time a dude lived? Okay. Well, I guess that's you could pretty much say that about anything. And it's great because people still think the original Fargo movie is a true story because it says it's based on a true story. And it's not. Uh, they just did no. that. To, and then also the Fargo TV series, they do the same thing, you know, based on a true story. And I think so many people think that the writing is so good and some of the stuff that they come up with, you couldn't make it up that people now still think. I think maybe now it's three seasons in. I think more people are kind of catching on to it a little bit more or understanding that it's not real. Like if they see based on the true story, they're going to take it to heart. And then by God, I know I'll hear about it from some people because the day I decide to attend a church ceremony, I'm going to hear something about Fargo and the pastor is going to bring up something about fucking Fargo. And it's happened before. It's somebody did a, <laughs> a, a priest talked about something and he compared what he was talking about to a character in Fargo, to William H. Macy in Fargo and how nice. Well, at any rate, that uh, that is my news. So bring us home on the news, sir. Sure. I will end the news with this because this is kind of an update on the whole Sony clean version of their movie news that Matt brought up last week. And in fact, the day I posted the show, this article came out, or at least a version of this article come out, came out. So I'm reading a, 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 an updated version of it from June 16th. Uh, today is uh, June 19th. 
But uh, again, from the HollywoodReporter.com. Unfortunately, this is the latest article. Adam McKay, Adam Sandler, movies pulled from Sony's clean version program, written by Mia Galupo. And quickly, it says this. While Sony Pictures Home Entertainment planned to offer its new clean version initiative with edited versions of 24 of the studio's movies, the program now lists just 17 movies after a number of directors objected to having their films included in the program. Adam McKay is among the filmmakers who have opted to take their movies out of the program, which would offer the sanitized version of the studio's films, the version shown on airlines and broadcast TV. McKay said that he was not intentionally made of aware of the initiative. McKay's comedies Talladega Nights and Step Brothers have since been removed from the clean version website where the offerings are listed. Also removed from the previous lineup are Big Daddy, The Grown Ups Movies, 51st Dates, and Pixels, all from Adam Sandler and his Happy Madison production banner, which has had a long-time relationship with the studio. Rob Letterman's Goosebumps is also no longer available. Following the June 7th launch of the program, directors voiced their displeasure with the possibility that their films would be altered for general sale, and there were strongly worded tweets from Seth Rogen and Judd Apatow. Both directors have worked with the studio on features, but neither director's work were included in the original list of 24 films. The Directors Guild of America weighed in on the program, saying in a statement, quote, "...directors have the right to edit their feature films for every non-theatrical platform." plain and simple. Taking a director's edit for one platform and then releasing it on another without giving the director the opportunity to edit violates our agreement. End quote. Following the backlash, SPHE president Manjeet Singh responded in a statement to The Hollywood Reporter, quote, We believe we had obtained approvals from the filmmakers involved for use of their previously supervised television versions as a value-added extra on sales of the full version. But if any of them are unhappy or have reconsidered, we will discontinue it for their films. End all quotes there. Uh, the article does go on for a tad bit more. Who didn't see this coming? I could not see these directors being, especially Adam McKay, who I like his movies, and out of, between him, Judd Apatow, and Sandler, and Seth Rogen, I definitely prefer Adam McKay's movies, and they are just fine how they are. Especially Talladega Nights. You don't fuck with Talladega Nights. I think that movie is a classic in its own right. But Matt, are you happy to hear this? Do you not care? Did you see this coming as well? Because I know you were okay with the idea of releasing clean versions along with the regular version of yeah, the movie. And that's and that was what was key for me, was they were not outright circumventing the original versions. Um, it, it's For me, it's no different um, than having um, a movie where when you buy it, you, you have your choice between this, you know, you, the theatrical and the unrated version. Um, it, it, maybe not every time, but I know that there are definitely um, instances where the director did not have as much of a say in the unrated cut. Um, and so I guess for me, I'm I'm fine with it simply because the people who are buying the clean version are automatically getting the regular version too. So um, it is what it is on that regard. But in today's day and age, in the corporate world that they are living in, I'm glad that they're at least putting a positive 
spin and a face on our, you know, air quotes over here, artistic integrity. But I can tell you right now that every one of these directors will probably find their next contract to be not quite as favorable, at least from Sony, as they were before. I promise. And that's my news. All right. Well, then I guess we'll leave the news and go into... She made me watch it. I need to find like a good clip of like Kathy Bates in misery, <laughs> forcing him to write uh, that book for her. And that can be the opening to this. Misery's child or whatever. All right. So uh, she made me watch it. Uh, this is, th- this was an idea that was presented by Tim and, uh, I'm not exactly sure what the circumstance was that he got in trouble or he had to do something and quick thinking wasn't, I'll put something in the show for you. And that's how we ended up with this. But I get this text saying, you have to watch a movie and get your wife to get you because I have to watch. I'm like, okay, dude, whatever you need. This is really weird. I don't understand it, but I love you. You're my friend and we're going to do this. So. This is She Made Me Watch It. Tim, would you like to explain the genesis, the kernel, the, you know, the beginning of the idea for this segment? Well, Matthew, I'd be happy to explain (laughs) the kernel, the genesis of this segment. Like, my nostalgia for, uh, for movies as a kid are different from the movies that she grew up watching. I had a pretty cool dad who would wake me up, (laughs) who would wake... That sounded stupid, but uh, yeah, he you, normally if I was sleeping in too late or if I was sleeping more than 48 hours, he'd try to wake me up. But, you know, like my parents would go and rent a movie on a Friday night and usually or every once in a while, they'll rent one for them, an R-rated film like, uh, you know, whatever R-rated Arnold Schwarzenegger movie was out at the time or... Uh, I remember Starship Troopers being one of uh, one of these movies that I really wanted to see, but you know I wasn't. My mom didn't want me to watch it because it was R-rated for good reason, and so my dad would wake me up like at 6 a.m. on Saturday morning, and he would basically say, "It's a good one. Get down there," and then I'd go down and watch this movie. You know, and that's how I was introduced to movies like this, and I guess that's why I like some of these movies more than they deserve because I, you know, like it's kind of a sweet little cool little father son type of thing. So my nostalgia for movies as a kid are action flicks, you know, really good uh, classics and stuff like that. With the significant other, she grew up watching a lot of Disney stuff and they would, uh, I don't think they had cable or anything when, when she was a kid. So she would have to record a lot of these Disney movies whenever they were on TV on a VHS tape. So she had these VHS tapes that she would go back and watch. And, over the years, since we've been together for five years now, every once in a while we'll watch one of these. And some of them are very, very silly. In the movie I'm, I'm going to be talking about is Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken. It's a Disney movie. It's nostalgic for her because when she watched it as a kid, it felt like she was watching a grown-up movie that didn't have all the thematic elements that if it was made differently, it would have made it R-rated or PG-13 or even PG. I mean, it was a G movie. If this movie were made now, I don't know if it would necessarily be G or not, or if it would actually even get a theatrical release. And that was so unique about the Disney live-action movies from the mid to late 80s and uh, in the early to mid 90s, you know, because they were G movies about adults or kind of older-ish people. 
and it was a period piece and money was actually put into the budget of it. And, you know, this is kind of becoming a roundabout way of me saying that it was just ultimately nostalgic for her. And I know she has a lot of these to make me watch. And so I think as a compromise to her and Matt, I'm sure your wife has a number of these movies up her sleeve. And I guarantee you, once she knows that she has the power to make you watch something every once in a while, she might jump on it, if that makes sense. Sure, that that makes sense. No, my my wife, uh, she 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 watches movies like Anne of Green Gables, Twilight, and Meet the Millers. So, um, we don't really have a lot of movies in common, and if we do, it's because I've made her watch them. Now, in in her defense, she doesn't generally get all excited about watching movies with me when I'm like, hey, let's watch a movie together because uh, she always gets the lucky call of uh, Zombievers or Wolf Cop or something like that. And so she's like, I'm not going to watch these stupid movies with you. Um, But yeah, I got Now and Then. So I guess that's what I'm going to be talking about eventually. That's the 95, 1995 coming of age film with Demi Moore and Melanie Griffith and Rosie O'Donnell and whatnot. Like Christina Ricci plays, uh, Rosie O'Donnell as a little kid. And, um, Gabby Hoffman plays Demi Moore as a little kid, something like that. Well, I mean, do you want me to go? I can go first if you want me to. You should, you should. This is your baby. I will go first. And, <laughs> I prepared a little something so it'll it'll flow a little bit uh you know uh, you know it'll it'll flow, flow intro, better it'll, it'll flow, flow a little better than the intro is it'll what you yeah. that it will <laughs> What's your secret wish? What did you always want to be? In every girl's life there are dreams of adventure of romance of greatness but Sonora had a special dream are you? You're new diving girl. No, you're not. Diving girl has to be strong. A diving girl has to be brave, fearless, a showman. But I can do it because I can do anything. Good. You can get out of here. I'm not going to leave until you give me a job. Go on, get. Have a good trip. She was ready to face the challenge, but not alone. There's the tower. The horses haven't yet hurt. Nope. This is the riders. Yeah, you really think you can do it, huh? Sure. If Dr. Carver ever gives me a chance. You can mount that horse while he's moving. I'll let you train to be a diving girl. Sonora would learn that a dream worth having... I can do it. I know I can. ...is worth fighting for. Ah, that girl! We did it, boy! All right, all right. He's doing good, though. But what she never expected... It's for you. ...was to find someone who would share her dream. Sonora... I love you. I just need a little more time. No, it's got to stop. I don't want you hurt. I have to do this. Remember, let's do it just like we practice, right? What if I can't do it? You'll do it. When dreams take flight, wild hearts can't be broken. So wild hearts 
Can't Be Broken is a 1991 live-action Disney drama based on Sonora Webster Carver's memoir, A Girl and Five Brave Horses, which was published in 1961. In 1923, at the age of 15, Sonora Webster Carver answered a 1923 ad placed by William Doc Carver, who was looking for a diving girl to perform in his traveling circus. The role within the act, which William Doc Carver had originally created, required her to mount a running horse, bareback, as it reached the top of a 40-60 to foot wooden tower, and ride that horse as it plunged into an 11-foot pool of water. The idea of the diving horses came to Doc Carver after a bridge he was riding on, uh, that he was riding his horse on, collapsed, and from 40 feet, the horse perfectly executed a dive into a river. But back to Sonora. Sonora Carver soon became the main attraction at Doc Carver's Circus as the diving girl. And then she ended up becoming the lead diving girl when the original diving girl quit. Eight years later, in 1931, after a dive, Sonora hit the water off balance with her eyes open, causing retinal detachment. However, blindness would not keep her from doing what she enjoyed the most. As would Arnett French, Sonora Carver's younger sister, who would also join William Doc Carver's show as a diving girl, told the New York Times in 1997 that, quote, The movie made a big deal about having the courage to go on writing after she, Sonora, lost her sight. But the truth was... Riding the horse was the most fun you could have, and we just loved it so. We didn't want to give it up. If you were on the horse, there really wasn't much to do but hold on. The horse was in charge, end quote. And it was because of that rush of fun that Sonora remarkably continued to blindly dive horses until 1942 at the age of 34. That is the true story of Sonora Carver right there. So my SO, my significant other, has been talking up this movie to me for, for years now. And every time she asked if we could watch it together, I'd make up some excuse to watch another episode of House of Cards or Twin Peaks. I was against watching Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken after reading its IMDb synopsis and after watching its soft and melodramatic trailer on YouTube and after hearing from my SO that her only memory of this movie is of when she would watch her taped VHS copy as a child. The brief IMDb synopsis reads, quote, Thrilled by a performance she sees at a fair... Sonora tries to land a spot as a daredevil who rides horses off of high dives, end quote. And knowing how Disney's track record of cheesy family fodder period flicks was pretty consistent during the late 80s and early 90s, Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken is only one of the many truish period films involving, in some form or fashion, a human and animal bond. I kept resisting watching this movie because of all that. And that is until I had to make a compromise. If I was to introduce my S.O. to Shaun of the Dead, she had to introduce me to Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken. And that was our compromise. <laughs> so we ordered it on VOD and watched it, 
And I will have to admit that it was a perfectly entertaining 88-minute live-action Disney family drama romance film that had enough charm and likability oozing from its main cast, which featured Gabrielle Anwar, Michael Schofling, and Cliff Robertson, who made it a little easier to ignore all the ham in 1990s Disney melodrama. What I also liked was the look of the film. It was made in 1990 and 1991 and took place in the 1920s and 1930s with a chunk of the third act set in Atlantic City's Steel Pier. The production team used impressive backdrops and detailed matte paintings to achieve that look and aesthetic. However, I'm not entirely too sure how much of the movie is actually accurate because it doesn't feel accurate. In fact, the real Sonora Webster Carver stated that after she saw the film that, quote, the only thing true in it was that I rode diving horses. I went blind and I continued to ride for another 11 years, end quote. Disney's version is a family-friendly, feel-good film that doesn't pay attention to the details and character accuracy. Because the visual aesthetic of the film was impressive, maybe they were hoping that would distract from the details that would matter to an adult male like me watching this for the first time 26 years after it was released. But lastly, my SO had me watch this movie because it was very nostalgic for her. As a girl, she felt like she was again watching a very grown-up movie. But if they were to include more thematic elements, which they could have if they made it now, it possibly could have been PG-13 or PG. There's just something very likable about movies like this. It's by no means perfect, but it is a perfectly enjoyable 88-minute Disney nostalgic 1990s movie. There you have it. Our very first She Made Me Watch It. And it was actually not that bad. Well... Long story short, same here. Now and then, 1995 American coming-of-age film. Uh, and again, like I mentioned before, stars Christina Ricci, Gabby Hoffman, Melanie Griffith, Demi Moore, Rosie O'Donnell, amongst others. Truth or dare? Truth. Are you happy? Am I happy? That's a good question. I'm just realizing that I've spent my entire adult life trying to recapture the way I felt the summer of 1970. Where's the fire? Softball game, Kendall's field. It's gonna be all boys. So what are we waiting for? That was the summer when everything started to change. Hey, Wormers! Come and get them, suckers! Hey! Nuts! No matter what I do, they just keep getting bigger. If we wanted to hear the facts, we went to our parents. I've been thinking about what you asked me. About sex? You say that very casually, it scares me. Have you ever been French-kissed? Are you kidding? I don't want to get pregnant. <laughs> but if we wanted to know the truth, we went to our friends. It's like somebody going, boo, ah, that's what sex is. Just about the only thing that didn't surprise us that summer was who our friends were. It's too bad your mother's dead. Somebody needs to teach you to act like a girl. Uh, they say we make a pact. Whenever we need a friend, we're here for each other. No matter what happens in life. She was really beautiful, isn't she? We're here for each other always. Best friends for life. New Line Cinema presents... Christina Ricci and Rosie O'Donnell as Roberta. You're a woman on the verge. She's like a volcano ready to erupt. 
Ola Birch and Melanie Griffith as Teenie. You are a sexual magnet attracting men from the four corners of the world. Gabby Hoffman and Demi Moore as Samantha. Don't be afraid to take the plunge. You might surprise yourself. He's back and we brought him here. <laughs> Ashley Aston Moore and Rita Wilson as Chrissy. Let go of your inhibitions before you dry up like a prune. Get <laughs> In a film about who we were, you mention this to anyone? I'll beat the hell out of you. Who we are. Oh, Dad, I'm Christmas, I'm it's too late for that. Give me the drugs or I'll kill you! And the friends. Kind of looks like Rush Limbaugh. We have to thank for it. Truth. How big are your boobs now? Well, just how big are your boobs? 36D. And with every penny. Now and then. Directed by Leslie Linker-Glatter. And basically, this is the story of four girls who were friends in 1970, and they experienced their coming of age and, you know, learning about boys and finding out what life is kind of about and stuff. And they, and despite promises to stay together, they had kind of drifted apart, but come back together in 1995, um, each with their own newfound perspectives on life, because one of the women is going to have a baby. And they kind of you know rekindle the friendships and think about the good old days as it were so the movie in and of itself um it's very mermaidish remember if you can recall way 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 back when we talked about the movie mermaids uh with Cher and bob hoskins also with christina Ricci uh and winona Ryder, and um so so very much in that vein uh, you know, you're, you're meant to kind of feel nostalgic, uh, you know, think the sand lot and all that kind of stuff, but definitely with female sensibilities. And, and I can certainly see why my, why my wife liked watching it when she was uh, a teenager and, um, and can see how it might have shaped her as she grew into womanhood and what have you. So, um, it, it's a decent flick. It, it's, it's, it's very dated though. Even for 95, they make, they make lots of distinctly 90s references. Uh, I guess to try and show just how, how, how world wise they are now as opposed to what they were in, in 1970. So whatever. Um, so that's kind of disappointing, but it's definitely not a terrible movie. So. You know, and, and what, so, so there you go. Look, it, you know, it just goes to show that your SO can be, uh, very different and have wide and varied thoughts. And yet, occasionally, you'll come together in unexpected ways in the types of movies you like to watch. Indeed. Did, did you enjoy doing this? Did it bring you closer to your SO at all? Is it something you'd want to revisit? No, I had to watch it on my own. Because despite all promises and, uh, you know, and statements to the contrary, we never got our schedules together to watch this thing. The manliest afternoon. <laughs> Did you watch it, it on was, Father's Day? No, no. I watched it. Well, I guess technically it was Father's Day because it was like 2 o'clock in the morning before I went to bed. Oh, gotcha. So that was she made me watch it. Uh, next week. We are actually going to be doing, we're going to be re revisiting Creme de la Crap, where we'll be looking at Andy Sedaris's 1989's Savage Beach. Look out, guys. I know you've been waiting to whip out your 
babes, guns, bombshells. Hell yeah! I'm looking forward to. I'm. Look, I haven't. I literally haven't watched another one since Malibu Express. It'll be fun. It'll, and the nice thing is, is I'll be able to get Jen to watch this one. So that's what's up. But uh, yeah. All right, here we go, folks. It's the movie. <laughs> actually had two movies this week we had cars three and it comes at night unfortunately life just got in the way and as it turns out in a fortuitous way because neither one of us were able to see cars three that has been moved to next week and we will just be doing it comes at night here we go <laughs> it comes at night. 2017 American psychological horror film, uh, written and directed by Trey Edward Schultz, stars Joel Edgerton, Christopher Abbott, Carmen Ejogo, Kevin Harrison Jr., and Riley Kyo, uh, or Co. I just want to talk. And I want honest answers. Do you have any idea what's going on out there? I'm going to try and help you and your family. Hey, I want to thank you again for letting us stay here. Just going to run through a few things. When we go out during the day, we like to stick to groups just for safety. The red door. It's the only way in and out of the house. It stays closed and locked all the time. <laughs> I have the keys. It's the only set. <laughs> Most important thing. What's he see? It's okay. Just go inside. Never go out at night. The door was already open when you got there. Yeah. Then who opened it? Budget mask on. Nobody's sick here. Can't trust anyone but family. You don't get it. How old are you, Travis? If they're sick, then I am too. Basically, we're in a world where. Yeah, where where a, a devastating disease has taken over, and there's this family who is living in an isolationist way, um, and they start off the movie very quickly by showing just exactly how serious they are about keeping the contagion out, <laughs> um, and then of course our family um, is Paul, his wife Sarah, and their teenage son Travis, and uh, Paul is played by Joel Edgerton. Uh, Sarah is played by Carmen Ajogo and their son Travis is played by Kev Kelvin Harrison Jr. Um, we then get uh, a new family who is uh, headed by Will and Kim. Will is played by Christopher Abbott and Kim by Riley Keogh. I guess we'll, we're going to go with that. Keogh. Will is... Will has his family and he stumbles across Paul's family. And of course, Paul isn't having any of that. Um, and... They have to kind of figure out how much they're willing to trust one another and work together. Um, and that's really kind of the crux of the movie right there. I'm not going to say anything more than that because not necessarily because anything more will be spoilers, but this story is, um, is, is very thin is not the right word. Um, but it's definitely 
a story that's been excoriated, right? I mean, it has been whittled down to be as efficient as possible. And so I don't want to give anything more away, not because it's going to spoil the movie, but because the story points that go from there on, um, I, I think are important to just be discovered on their own. This movie is actually a very decent movie for me. I really enjoyed the aspects of the movie that are all about creating a world that gives you a plausible reason for a small cast. And what that does is it forces you to have intriguing characters and, uh, and, and taking these characters and putting them into not necessarily a one-room drama, but definitely a very limited space really allows you to explore the psyche and what it means to be trapped with someone. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter how nice it is or how pretty the, how, how pretty the, the, the forest is or how nicely the walls are painted. A prison is still a prison. And these, all of these themes get explored. And it's wonderful because you have such a great actor, uh, like Joel Edgerton. And it, you, you get to see these multi, you get to see the layers and the dimensions to these characters. And that's where the strength of the film lies. Because with a story that's designed to, because again, this is just a world where a disease is struck and it forces, it's forced this family to live in isolation, right? So, it, you, you are left with kind of the, what, you know, so, so what is actually happening here? Why are these families behaving the way that they do? Um, and there's lots and lots to explore in terms of the characterizations. And that's where I think the movie has its strengths. And again, um, that's just because of how, uh, of, of how straightforward the story itself is. And honestly, um, I, I don't know that they could have done anything better. I feel that the only problem is, is I feel that the setup takes too long. The payoffs, honestly, for me, I thought the payoffs were really, really well done. And I really enjoyed the characterizations that, and how they played into one another as well as they went as well as they would stand alone as individuals um, that where you can pick out, pick and choose the things that are like, Oh, I could, I, I can see that, or I would totally do that. Or, you know, and it creates those kinds of things because the environment isn't so much the story as the characters are. And that's a great, and that can be a great thing. But unfortunately, when you have such a simple, straightforward plot, it, when you put when you put those that many constraints on it, um, it, it can become very easy to not be bored by, but to feel like you've kind of reached the 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 full extent of the depth of the characters, and you have to be careful there because then the writing kind of can go into I don't want to say cheap tricks, but definitely into tropey territory if they're not too careful. And sometimes I felt that that was where it was reaching. And I think it's just because it was too, a little too narrow. And 
it felt that it was too long. In in certain regards, it felt that it was too long. Not in the payoff, but in the setup. And it's only a 90-minute movie, so I don't know what they could have done other than perhaps either expanded the character roster or expanded the scope of a, of the story itself a little bit. Uh, at the end of the day, I give this one 3.75 out of 5. It's a, it, I like this movie a lot. Um, but it does, it, it does have a few flaws. But man, the characters are great. It's really well acted. And another reason why I think Joel Edgerton's fantastic. What do you got there, Tim? It's definitely gotten to the point now where, regardless of what movie Joel Edgerton is in or is a part of directing, if, I mean, even if he's directing or he wrote a movie and he's not even in it, which I don't think has been the case yet. I know he's directed The Gift. Um, but I, regardless of what movie he's a part of, I will check it out because I like him as an actor. He He's very much like Michael Shannon in that respect, where he creates these very interesting characters that are a lot of fun to watch because they're layered. They're, uh, you can just tell that they actually spent time creating a character, creating somebody very humanistic. And that's exactly what Joel Edgerton did with this movie. I was very surprised hearing all of the complaints from audience folk uh, who have gone, who went to go see this movie thinking it was going to be a horror movie. I made it a point to stay away from any reviews, any trailers. I, I think I saw a teaser trailer for this movie. And I think the focal point of the teaser, or it might've been a tra the trailer, but I probably just turned it off. It was a shot of the dog from behind the dog going into a black forest, and it was just a flashlight over the dog, and it just creeped me the hell out. And I was reading more about it, uh, reading more about the movie, and it's being labeled as a horror movie. And I went to go see the movie, uh, and as I was sitting in the theater, I was reading, I was on Rotten Tomatoes looking up the director, and when I looked at it, I looked at the Rotten Tomatoes score, which has a very high critic score, but it has a ridiculously low audience score. I think the critic score is like 80-something, maybe even 90-something. The audience score is like 30s or 40s. I mean, it's it's not good. They had the bucket that's tipped over with the popcorn spilling out. And so it was very interesting. I, I wasn't exactly too sure what I was in store for. So you watch the movie, and it's important to not have any preconceived notions going into it, but keep in mind that it is not a cookie-cutter horror movie that you are more than likely used to seeing. It's more character-driven, and it's more of like a psychological horror, really, than anything else. The horrors of what humans can do, not the evils lurking outside, or that could be lurking outside. And that, I mean, I guess that's just really what all I really want to say about the movie in particular. I did read reviews and uh, read up more on what people were saying, after I saw the movie, and I saw that a lot of people just felt let down. Um, I saw the movie last Thursday, pretty late, like around 10 o'clock or so, and there was about maybe 10 other people in the movie theater, and they were all couples, relatively young couples, and I could hear people making comments like, oh, where's the jump scare? Oh, where's the monster? Where's the evil entity? There's really not one. And so then I went back and read these reviews, and just everybody felt let down. Then I watched the trailer, the full trailer, and I realized, well, even by watching the full trailer, I didn't get the idea that this was an all-out horror movie. So I really don't think the marketers of the film, A24, I believe, did anything wrong. So I really don't know what their problem 
was because they absolutely hated the movie despite there being good acting. I can kind of see where they're coming from. I definitely don't think it warrants being hated, but at least for me, it left me wanting more. And it has great acting, it has great character work, therefore I think maybe my reasoning for uh, for giving it a, I mean it's a 3.5 out of 5 rating for me, giving it a 3.5 out of 5, because I think either the script or maybe even the directing was trying to be minimalistic for the sake of being minimalistic, yet they had these kind of cool like camera shots and camera angles and just camera work that felt like they were trying to set you up for something, but there was no payoff. And I get it. They don't want to give you jump scares and there. I don't, I don't remember there being any jump scares, maybe one or two slight jump scares, but there has to be something else there or it just starts feeling cheap. Once you start having these long fancy camera movements that ultimately lead to nothing. So I like the movie. I like the character work. I definitely like Joel Edgerton. But again, it's just, I guess it's the story or the script or the directing. 3.5 out of 5. I liked it a little bit more than liked it. <laughs> no problem. All right. Well, that does bring us to the end of the movies. Uh, next week's movie, I guess, hey, well, guess what? It's Cars 3. Yay. We finally figured that out. All right. And without further ado, I think it is time for the spiel. Is it not, sir? Spiel on. All right. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me. This is Matt on Twitter at Nick. Twit12345. You can, of course, comment more that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Joel Edgerton, I get to say this. Everything is a learning process. Anytime you fall over, it's just teaching you to stand up the next time. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.